All right, well, I am looking forward to jumping into this extension of our discussion today as we talk about uh, just some additional database-related concepts. I want to show you uh, some things in the ABOP dictionary and, and talk about some things that uh, extend what we already know, hopefully, about working with databases. And I do hope that all of you have started work on your homework because I think if you have, then uh, you've already had opportunities opportunity to reinforce some of the skills and things that, that we have talked about. If you have not jumped into it, uh, your homework in earnest, I would encourage you to do so. It's not necessarily uh, something that will require writing a large amount of code, but I think it probably requires more than a trivial amount of time to do it. And so uh, make sure you plan your schedule accordingly. We can, of course, in ABOP, join together tables. There are a couple of different ways that we can do this, but fundamentally the distinction we have is either to create a, a dynamic link or I'm using the term static here. Um, and, and what I mean by that is we can predefine a query that brings things together. But of course, the data that that results in will change over time as new data is incorporated into, into various tables. Dynamic links are something that we would create in the context of an ABOP program where we would have ABOP, an ABOP statement or set of statements that creates an ABOP join. And if we are joining tables together for the sake of a single program, and we see this as kind of a one-time thing or a rare occurrence, then that makes sense for us to do. But if the kind of uh, join we are doing will span across multiple programs or we see it as a very common thing to do, then we have the option to create a, a view. And a view could also be viewed as a static link, and we create these in the ABOP dictionary. Now, let me, before we jump into the technical elements of this, let me tell you why this is increasingly important in the context of the transition to HANA and SAP S4. Um, in the old SAP system, we had a, a myriad of, of database tables out there. And you had database tables um, by, by the thousands. And it was all part of the overall data design and uh, the kinds of things that you've talked about regarding data normalization and database classes and otherwise. But you're looking at just a, a huge set of database tables, clearly over 10,000 and maybe multiple times that in some organizations. Well, these were the traditional row-based database tables. And what SAP has done now as they have moved to S4, I, I think we talked about this last time, the S in S4 is simple. And so they have gone back and looked at their data model with the idea of simplifying it. Now, a lot of the database tables that are out there in our historical uh, ERP system, although historical is still what most companies are using today, but the idea here is a lot of these tables contain things like uh, pre-computed aggregates. 
the idea being that as data came into the system for the sake of facilitating reporting and for the sake of delivering functionality without burdening the system with having to do a lot of real-time calculations, a lot of the database tables really just aggregated data for the sake of simplifying those kinds of demands on the system. That was necessary to try and keep a lot of the load off of the database processor. Well, now that things are moving to HANA and the data is all being put into memory and we're looking at processing or computer systems with multiple processors, these pre-computed aggregates, as they are called, are no longer necessary. So right away, a lot of database tables that have, that have existed historically are no longer needed in the system. They're just gone. Well, then in addition to that, in transitioning from row-based tables to column-based tables, there was a recognition that things that used to be spread across multiple tables could actually now be brought into a very, very wide column-based table. And we're talking about a table that perhaps might have uh, 600 fields in it that would actually represent things that previously were spread out across multiple tables. Well, if you're moving to this architecture as a way of simplifying things, then certainly the idea is moving forward, developers can develop with this new S4 data model in mind. But how do you actually support the idea of always having backwards compatibility and not having things break that previously worked just fine? We said that a lot of database tables were going to be totally killed off. Well, what about the ABAP programs that reference those database tables? So SAP made a very, very interesting decision. They are in the process, and, and by the way, S4 is very much a work in process. SAP is delivering it module by module. So it may actually take uh, three or four more years before S4 is finally finished. SAP started with financials. That has been delivered. Now they're working on logistics. I think that has been delivered, but only in the last few weeks here. And then they're moving into planning and they're going to, you know, iteration by iteration take on additional modules until they have everything moved over. So how do we account for this idea that things are going to be killed off as we move to this new model? Well, what SAP has said is that as a part of providing backwards compatibility, data is not going to be thrown away. But aggregates may no longer be pre-computed. And a lot of the things that were individual tables before now are going to be consolidated into one table. So what they have said is, let's assume that this table right here is, I'll just make one up here, T147. Well, maybe they have killed off T147 in their design, and those, that data is now represented by this set of fields in, in whatever this table is right here. What is happening is this will not actually be a database table anymore, but there will be a view called T147. And the view will be exactly the same data as what used to be an actual table, T147. 
And when you write your ABAP code, the code doesn't change at all. Because when you go out and say select star from T147, in the old system, it knew, okay, T147 was a table, so it grabbed it. In the new system, when you say select star from T147, it goes out, and in the ABAP dictionary, it sees that that's a view. And so it gives you the data, and on your end as a developer, it really doesn't change anything at all. It looks exactly the same as it always had. So in the new HANA S4 architecture, views become even more important. A view is essentially a dynamic virtual table that's created that the way we're talking about it here is doing joins and bringing together things from tables. But in the new S4 architecture, views are also being used kind of to, to provide this backwards compatibility that's so important in the overall system. Does that make sense? Any questions about that? All right, so how do we do a join? if we are doing it in the context of, a, of an actual single program. Um, we do this by adding a join on clause after the from clause in a select statement. Uh, the join expression consists of a left table and a right table. You're used to the concepts here, I trust, from other database work you have done. And join options include join, which actually is an inner join, and left join, which is more commonly called a left outer join. So those are the only two kinds of joins that are supported in the ABOP select statement. So here would be an example of what we're talking about here. Select star, which we've said is is something to be avoided, but I'm just sticking with it here so as not to give us too large a block of code to look at. Select star from SP fly, enter join S car on. So I'm going to get back all of the fields that result from joining SP fly and S car, and the join is going to be based on taking SP fly's carrier ID field and S cars carrier ID field and putting things together based on where those two values are are equal. And so you notice the notation here that we see in the join scenario, which is somewhat different than we have seen previously. We do not use a dash or a hyphen between the table name and the field name, but rather we use the tilde here. And I, I don't profess to know why they uh, elected to use different symbols here, except they did. The tilde is what's used to separate the table and the field name. And you'll notice in this example here, we are placing the result of our join into an, an internal table. You cannot, uh, excuse me, if multiple comparisons are desired, you can use and here. So we could uh, incorporate that in the syntax of our join, uh, but we cannot use kind of more advanced syntactical elements such as not, like, or in in the overall comparison here. 
So uh, we'll write some code to go along with this here in just a moment, but this would be the way we would join together a, a set of tables. I'm just illustrating two here in our ABOP programs. Questions about this so far? Okay, just as a, a reminder here, when we talk about an inner join, which we observe that this was the default kind of join that we get here. Uh, you're linking together the columns on the left table with the columns on the right table where the specified join fields meets the join condition. So where certain specified fields are equal. The results on the left where there's not a pair or a matching element on the right just aren't part of the result set. Okay, so where you don't have a join, then in those situations, uh, whatever rows are affected just get removed from, from the result set. An outer join links the columns in the left table with the columns on the right table uh, where the specified joins meet the join condition. The distinction here is rows on the left where the join condition does not exist are left in the result set with the fields coming from the right table set to null. Okay, So one of these is going to tend to result in a larger result set, but with the outer join, you may have fields that are actually set to null if there is no, if there is no, um, data that matches up with the join syntax. Questions about this? All right, so let's look at this and work through an example here together real quick. Um, let us look at two database tables. Uh, first database table, SCAR. Okay, and so let me pull that up here. Whoops, display. Here is the SCAR table. Notice it has client, airline code, airline name, local currency of the airline, and the URL of the airline. This is a table that we have worked with before, and, and I don't recall, this may even be one that you're working with in the sake, for the sake of your homework. Um, the other table I would like for us to work with is SPFLY. And SPFLY has a lot more information in it. Um, it's still pretty small by SAP uh, table standards here. But you'll notice we have airline code, a flight connection number, a country key, departure city, departure airport, another country key, arrival city, uh, destination airport, flight time, departure time, arrival time, distance. If, if we actually look at the data in this table, um, this, is, this is what we see. Okay, so notice that um, we have carrier ID here, but if we wanted to print this out and wanted to not put carrier ID, we wanted to put the actual full name of the airline, that's not in this table. So we would have to join it with the SCAR table in order to, in order to pull that out. So here is what I am proposing. Um, let's create a uh, ABAP program that would output uh, bringing together this information and give us a table that shows the airline name, the city 
it has flights from, the city it has flights to, the distance between those two cities, because that's a, a item here, distance, and then the URL of the airline in case somebody sees a flight they want and, and can go to the airport or, or you know, can book a, a uh, travel with that airline. So, bless you. So my, my first question for you is this. What is the first thing that we need to do and in, in crafting this program. Create an internal table, but there's something we need to do before we can create the internal table. Create the structure that the internal table is going to be based on. And, and we can't say, um, you know, give me a structure like a database table because there's not a database table that matches this. It's, we're going to have to do this by way of a join. So we are going to have to create our own data type. And so this is a good review of that process. Uh, types, colon, begin of. And I'm just going to call this uh, uh, airline struct uh, for lack of a better name. Yes, sir. You did S. Oh, we could do it in SE11. That would not be a problem. I'm just going to do it here for the sake of this program because I don't see this being a structure that I'm going to reuse with great frequency. But for your homework, that would be a fine design decision to do. All right, so what do I want to have in this structure? And I've already looked up the field names here and have it on my hard copy so we don't have to bounce back and forth. But I want the carrier name, and we'll take care of the types and everything else here in a moment. Let's just kind of, I always like to list what I want to be in this structure. I want the carrier name. I want what's called AIRP from, which is the uh, airport it's departing from. And I want AIRP to which is the airport it's going to. And then we said we wanted the distance, and then we want the URL, okay? So those are the different fields that we are going to be working with. And so now I need to come back and give these, these guys a type. And we'll, for the reasons we talked about last time, we will employ the like statement here. And it turns out that car name is found in S car. So, I would say I want car name to be like S car dash car name. I want airp from to be like SP fly dash airp from because that's where that field is found. I want airp two to be like SP fly dash airp two. I want distance to be like SP fly dash distance. And I want URL to be like scar-url, and that is the end of my airline struct, okay? So you see in my structure there, uh, we're not doing anything too exotic here, but we are bringing together data from, from two different tables. Well, 
Now, as was suggested a moment ago, I, I'm ready to create my, my internal table. So, uh, data, I table, type, um, I'll go ahead and make it a sorted table. Sorted table of airline struct with non-unique key, and I will make um, carrier name the key. Run that by me again. Yeah, I think they do. Let me let's just double check here. Interesting. Let's see. Let's see what happens. Okay. You have down the sorted can have either? Yeah, that's what I thought. Standard can't have unique. Hash has to have unique, and with sorted, it can go either way. Yeah, I thought that was the case, but you guys made me like gun shy there for a second. So, all right, and then I need my work area. So data wa like line of uh, i table. All right, so now I've got my structure defined. I've got an internal table defined. I've got a work area defined, and so now the time has come for me to fill up my table by way of a select statement, okay? So, uh, what fields do I want? Well, I want car name, got an extra space in there, so select car name and ARP from and ARP to and distance and URL. So you, you should notice parity there, what I've said I want in my structure is reflected here in my select statement. Um, from, and now here's my join syntax, from spfly inner join scar on, and now I, what fields am I joining these on? And this is where I have to go back to the table and kind of have to look at, I don't know if we can get both of these guys on the screen at the same time. Um, I have to look for, for fields that I can join together. And you'll notice we have carrier ID as a key field here. And I believe if we go back here to our data browser, we will in fact see that carrier ID is a key field here. So I can join these based on carrier ID. So I'm going to join, enter join SCAR on SPFLY tilde carrier ID equals S car tilde carrier ID. Got a really long line of code here, so I'm going to put a return into this just to make it more readable. Enter join S car on SP fly carrier ID equals S car carrier ID. And then I want this to go into what's the rest of my syntax here? into what? Yes, it's always a good idea to do corresponding fields, even though probably could get away with not doing that because my order is listed as the same, but uh, defense in depth here uh, into corresponding fields of table, I table. 
So I have hopefully now filled my table here with data from the result of the join. I'm going to save this and before I go any further we'll do a syntax check and it reported everything was fine. So at this point now um, what I'm going to do is pretty standard for us. Uh, loop at itable into wa write uh, wa dash and you, you got to make sure here you use tildes where they go and, and dashes where they go. And the only place the tildes go is, is actually in the select statement uh, in the join part of the syntax there. So I'm going to write out the carrier name and then I'll jump over to column 20 and I'll write out the airport from. It, it would be good in this situation for me to um, put headers over the columns, but uh, for the sake of our example here, we're not going to do that for the sake of time. Thank you. Airport 2, and then we'll go over to uh, 40, and uh, WA dash, actually this is over, well, uh, my columns aren't necessarily going to be beautiful here, uh, and some of them might be too too uh, small or too too short here. And then with distance, there are some things that I could do with distance to make this a little bit more interesting. For example, I could write justify these um, with with no with no decimal portion um, to make that line up a little bit nicer. Here, let me uh, bring that over, and um, then uh, we'll go over to say column 50 and we'll do um, the URL. Now once again, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure that my column spacing is going to be really, really perfect. That's kind of not the point, but, but we'll see how bad it looks and clean it up a little bit here. But what I should see as a result now is uh, the join condition resulting in this data right here. And sure enough, uh, where things look really bad is my distance is over way too far. And so let me pull back distance a little bit. Let's put that in uh, maybe 30, 35 and see what this looks like now. Okay, so, so here's my result. I see that Alitalia goes from FCO to FRA, which you might say, well, wouldn't it have been nicer to put the cities there? Sure, but you know we could make that change. But I just picked the, the fields that were the three-letter uh, airline abbreviation, and then the distance, and then the, the URL. Now, if you think about it, there were a lot more um, values in the right table than, than what we were, were looking at here. And it just has to do with the overall syntax of the join that, that we have done. Uh, just out of curiosity, let, let's see what happens if we say uh, select from and let's flop the table orders here. Let's make uh, SCAR the left table and let's make SPFLY the right table. Um, and I'll go ahead, I don't know that we technically would have to reorder these, but I'll reorder these as well. Okay, and I misspelled that. Yep, two S's. All right, and let's see the result here. And I don't know, that, that looks like pretty much the same result set here. 
So in this case, um, the order of the tables really is, is not something that, that would be significant. Questions about this? Let me show you, well, let me ask you this. What's a different way that I could have written this program? Anybody have any ideas? If I did not, and I, I'm just pointing out alternatives here. I could use a select loop if I did not care about sort order. Okay, and, and just as a, a, for a second here, let's look at what that would look like. Um, that would change this to what I could do is I could, I'll just comment it out. I could kill off my internal table. I could select into corresponding fields of, oh, I have to actually, I guess, um, this is going to be just data WA type airline struck now. I can't do making it like that. So type airline struct, okay? And then into corresponding fields of, technically this isn't a work area anymore, but, but we'll just stick with the syntax we have here. And then this would actually go away. And I believe that's all the changes. Well, let's check it first. And incorrect nesting, um, oh yeah, this is not end loop anymore. This becomes end select. And so another way of producing the exact same result set without having uh, the internal table as a part of it, okay? Questions? All right, so that's how we do joins in the context of, of doing them in a program. Um, the other option we said was uh, static links or views. Um, these are defined in the ABOP dictionary. With the ABOP dictionary, these joins are always going to be inner joins. And what's very important here, um, once we define these and activate these, we reference them just like a database table in our ABOP programs. So you could create a view which joins together tables, and then in a program, you could select a subset of the fields in that particular view. You don't have to treat it like an all or nothing situation. And the view will automatically, the data you will get back, will be reflected of the current data in the various tables that are referenced. Let's look at how we could create this and then we will uh, update our program accordingly. So I'm back here at the main screen of the ABOP dictionary and you'll notice one of my choices here is, is view. So I am going to create a new view. Always have to start these with my username, so ZE02, and I'll just call these, um, I don't know why my caps lock key is giving me, there we go. Um, I'll just call this uh, FLT view for flight view and create. Now, we will always be creating database views. So copy. So I have to give this a description. Um, data from 
SCAR and uh, SPFly uh, should be fine. And now over here, and what's really interesting about this is there are, are places you would think that you could search, but you'll notice we don't get a search bubble here next to this. Um, and in fact, if I press F4 though, I, I do get the ability to search here. But I know the tables that I want to work with are SPFly and SCAR. So I'm just going to type those in. However many tables I want to incorporate into this dynamic join that I'm putting together, I, I put here. And in fact, once I have the tables listed in, I can hit the relationships button here and it shows me the tables that I have referenced. And it also shows me tables that are related to those tables and other things that have been done in the system if I would want to actually, uh, you know, consider that when I'm putting this together. It kind of shows me tables that reference uh, things that I am incorporating into my view here. But I have to specify now my join conditions. And once again, uh, here for table, I press F4, I don't get anything. No input help available. So I'll type in SPFly and press enter. And now it asks me, okay, what do I want for field name? Press F4 here, and I'm, I'm not getting any help, okay? So that's one reason why whenever I do this, I always kind of like to write the program first to make sure I've got the right ideas here and then just reproduce that here. So remember our join was based on, I'm looking at my, my sheet here, it was based on um, the carrier ID field. So carried and then SCAR carried, okay? So that is now the join proposition that is going to be used for this. At this point now, um, I believe I could click on graphic. Nope, I haven't activated it yet, so I don't get anything yet here so far. But as we continue building this, we will. So I've specified the tables I want incorporated. I've specified, I just have one join proposition here. If I had multiple, I would just continue to list them. And now I go over here to the fields. So what fields do I want here? And so if I were to say, now notice I, I do have search here. So I could say, well, out of the um, SCAR table, I want field carrier name. And out of uh, the SP fly table, I want, um, let's see, what did we do here? Air from. So there's that guy. And notice what I did here. I'm, I'm, I'm letting it put in the name of the field in the view, just using the fact that it's going to make it the same as what's in the, in the uh, table that we're using as the source here. And then the third one, SP fly, and our third field was ERP2. So ERP2, and then SP fly. And I could just type these in, as you see right here, as long as I don't misspell anything. SP fly distance, and then URL SCAR, uh, or actually I got this wrong. This is SCAR URL. So those should be the same fields that we were referencing before. I'm going to go ahead and save this. 
just make it part of my local package here. So this is saved. Now, if I start clicking on things, you'll notice that, that some of this I, I don't really have. And we see why I'm not getting some of these buttons to respond based on this right here. Okay, and notice it even calls it a table. Table ZE02 flight view is not active in the dictionary. So let me go ahead and activate this. Don't worry about warnings. And now, when I look at the contents here, I actually see the results. Now, what do you notice about this as compared to what we saw uh, before? Yeah, the way it does the join here, this is, this is doing the kind of join we talked about before where, where it's, it's doing it for every instance. And it's just the nature of the way this is actually doing the join here. And it doesn't really tell us. It tells us you're getting a maximum of 200 here. But, but watch what happens when we reference this in, in our program. So let's go back here now that this is in our dictionary. And now I can change my, my program around. So I really don't need this type definition anymore, do I? Um, I can kill this off. And I can say data I table type sorted table of. And I can list the name of my view, which is ZE02 FLT view. Okay, and then this is going to be like line of. Okay, and what's this going to change to? This would be a place where I could get away with the select star because I do in fact want all the fields from, from our view ZE02 FLT view. Um, I don't need the inner join. It'd be into corresponding fields of and we'll, we're going back to where we started here into table, I table and then loop at I table into WA, and then this is uh, end loop. Now, remember we saw all that multiplication of rows? The way that we tend to fix this, and there's no other really easy way to fix this, is just to do this, select distinct. And so now any duplicate rows are just going to be thrown out of the result set that I get here. Um, you might be wondering, would there have been anything that we could have done in the view definition to give us that? And oddly enough, the answer is no. Um, this is part of OpenSQL. Um, we, we do have the ability to limit here, but we don't have the ability to limit it in the data dictionary level. And so you'll notice, though, um, the kind of join that it did here, even though we said select star, this is the result set that we get back for, um, it, it's really kind of an odd result set we get back here because we're getting more of a star type join. And so we would really have to further clamp down 
our join characteristics to get this to look like the same result set. So the reason, I don't want to dig into that right now for the sake of time, but what I do want to show you is that you would think that the same syntax used on a program level when you move it to the data dictionary would get you the exact same result set, but it, it actually doesn't. A lot of times you have to add additional logic here to prune out those things. Um, when we did the join on our program level, any fields that were null resulted in the line being thrown out. So the first line where the URL is null, and it's kind of hard to figure out why the URL would be null there, but it is in this result set, that, would, that was thrown out in the first program. But due to the weird mechanics of how these dynamic links work, it, it doesn't result in that. So you have to be really, really careful when working with these guys and really dig into uh, some more of the facets of the view. So I, will, I wanted to show you this so you would be familiar with this, but we really won't be doing anything with these uh, views in, in programs that, that we write this semester. Unless you want, it won't be a requirement at least, if you want to incorporate it, you can. Questions? Sure. Questions? All right, what I'm going to show you next is something you will be using in programs that you will write this semester and is a very important concept that is a key element in the overall data integrity of working with a database in the overall SAP ERP concept. There is a concept called a logical unit of work. And the idea behind a logical unit of work is sometime we want to interact with a database table or set of database tables. And so imagine with me, we have the idea of we want to do five things. We want to go into this table and make this change, then go into this table and make this change. And, and we want to consider all of those things to be, even though they might be five distinct commands, it's all one logical unit of work. Well, the way we therefore want to handle this in our code is kind of an all or nothing principle. If I'm sending five different updates, but I consider all five of those updates to go together, if the first three updates work, but the fourth one doesn't, I don't want to be stuck with half of it working and half of it not. So the idea behind a logical unit of work is I view this as I want all of these things to happen or none of these things to happen. Now sometimes a logical unit of work is one database command. Sometimes a logical unit of work is a whole set of database commands. I determine what is in a logical unit of work when I write my code. And the idea here is what I want to have happen is if my entire sequence cannot be done, I don't want any of it. So what we're going to talk about here for the next few minutes is, is how to do rollbacks in our ABOP programs. SAP operates under the concept of a sealed database. 
Now remember conceptually, there's a lot of important things that are happening in our database tables. We have accounting transactions where debits have to equal credits. We have things where an invoice might actually have its data spread across five or six different tables. And therefore, if we go in and start making programmatic edits, we want to make sure that if our edits are going to span across five or six tables, that all of that happens. Otherwise, we risk the fact of having half correct and half incorrect data, which really means it's all wrong. So the sealed status is what we start with and what we want to end with all of our database operations. Sealed status just means nothing has been left hanging. There's no errant data in the system. So we start with a sealed database. We execute a sequence of commands, which in some way are going to be changing things in the database. And we have determined that those three operations are, are one logical unit of work. And so we have the ability at any point in the sequence here that's part of the logical unit of work to say, we have hit an error, roll everything back. So remember, in our coding, that would mean we do the first change, we check for errors, no error. We do the second change, we check for error, no errors. We do the third change, we have an error. We roll back everything, therefore. If we are happy with the way things have proceeded during our logical unit of work, we can issue a database commit, which will then say, okay, that logical unit of work has, has succeeded and, and we are we are fine to move forward. The database can now be considered sealed again. The only part of this that sometimes can be a bit tricky is open SQL commands will automatically commit in some situations. For example, in none of the database interaction that you are doing for your homework, did you explicitly issue a database commit command in order to get it to work? And you don't have to. But that comes from the fact that if we kind of, if you will, leave the database hanging, after a period of time, it'll just go ahead and say, well, I assume that the commit just wasn't sent and I will commit these. So we do have to be very, very careful if we're writing a logical unit of work and we realize there's the potential for us to want to roll things back. All of that logic has to be put there together. So what I'm saying is, if we did a database change, and then another database change, and then a third database change, and then we wrote out output. When we wrote out output, all of those changes would have been committed, even if we didn't explicitly commit them to that point. So any logic related to the rollback would have to come before we, before we actually did the output. So. How do we do the rollback? Two ways we could do a rollback. One way we can do the rollback is issue the ABOP statement rollback work. That's the whole statement. Rollback work will just undo whatever the last database sequence was that has not yet been committed. If I use this syntax, that doesn't terminate the program. Life goes on. And it doesn't do what's called resetting the context. 
which is just another way of saying my program is just going to forge right on ahead as, as if there's no problem at all. That's one way that I can, I can issue a rollback. The second way I can issue a rollback is through the use of messaging. Now you've read about messages in your textbook. I think a couple of people to this point have incorporated into their coding, but we haven't talked about them. So let's talk about messages here for a second and, and then we'll use it in this context. But notice a message of type A automatically issues a database rollback as a part of it and it ends the program. So if I have a situation where my, my database interaction is problematic and I say that means my program needs to be terminated, I'm done, then we use the message. If we say, well, my, role, my database interaction didn't work, but I still want to continue running my program, then the first option here is, is the one that would make the most sense. Let's talk about messages, though. You can send a message in your program using the message statement. And the syntax here only has one real odd element to it. Um, keyword message the text of the message in single quotes, reserved word type, and then what I think is kind of odd, the type has single quotes around it as well. And notice you have six different types. You have an informational message, uh, just what's called the set message, a warning message, an error message, a termination message, and a short dump. The one that we said causes the automatic rollback is the one of type A, the termination message. Now, how these will be shown to the user depends a little bit on how they have their SAP GUI set up. The informational message will show up in a dialog box. These other messages may show up in a dialog box or may show up down in their status bar, depending upon how they have things set up. So let's look at these real quick. I'll just kill off this program right here and let's do message and we'll start with a informational message. Message, uh, hi there, type, and I put quotes around this, uh, type I is the informational message. So now when I run this, um, I get that guy right there. Yes, sir. That is an error message. That's probably something you can create error message types in the dictionary. So I'm going to guess that's where we would find that. Are they using it as a type? No, they're using a message And then type something or other. I think in that case, it's kind of like we did with the text pool. And we said you could. Um, put in a reference to it. You could use a three-digit number, and then that would give you the language-appropriate version of that. That's what they're doing there. And so we could do that, but we haven't been using the, the text pool in that way in programs we've written so far. Um, second type was, let's look at the set message, and let's see how this is uh, um, type S. And notice what happened there. It's kind of subtle. When I ran it, 
I get the message high there, but it shows up down here in my status bar. Okay. Now this is based on, and I, I should have looked this up in, in advance. This is this is part of my user profile. That wasn't what I wanted to pick. User profile is it own data? Well, that certainly wasn't what I wanted to do, but let's go back there anyhow. Um, this is the same place where we turn on and off the, um, the transaction letters. Anybody remember where that's found? Because I always forget where it is. Ah. Technical details? No. There we go. Okay. Um, oh, interesting. There used to be a toggle here for whether you wanted modal or non-modal dialog boxes. That being the case and not being here, we haven't messed around with this this semester. Um, and I don't really want to dig into it now. But there is a program on your computer called the SAP GUI Configurator that the user can launch. And it gives them the ability to change their colors and, and do all kinds of things here. Let's see if perhaps uh, we can very easily find where this is here. Notifications. Um, beep it message, show success message, show warning. Okay, so I just at least turned on a set of these to show up as, as dialog boxes. And so now let me try and find which program. Yeah, this is this guy right here. Oh, I must have it in another window. I do. Okay. So, uh, yeah, see? So the user has the ability to control this. Um, based on their, their SAP GUI settings. So I just made dialog boxes show up here. Now the one of these that's really fun is um, with termination, you're going to get the dialog box where you should hopefully put a helpful message there. Don't put a message like something went wrong. Okay, give them a good message and that will cause it to terminate. But notice message type X is a short dump. So it doesn't really fit the high there message, but nonetheless, if I do this, and I'm going to get that every time, that's going to be fun. And this, so I'm programmatically dumping the program here in this situation. Now, what this actually does is this, put it, this is putting entries in the system log. There's been uh, um, um, entries that show up in administrative consoles related to this. If we wanted to go back in and look more at the run of this program, we could. So this is kind of a way to flag this on the system level. Maybe later on this semester, I'll show you how to look at that. But I, I don't want to do that today to see those log files and such. So the point of this was, if I want to issue a database rollback, I could either do rollback work or I could present to the user a, a message of, of type A. So let's, let's look at some code here. It just depends on if you want the program to keep running or not. 
That's really the whole idea here. So notice here, let's say I had an open SQL statement of some sort, and I check sy-subrc, and it's not equal to zero, which meant something just went wrong. And on that basis, I want my program to end. Here's one way to do it. Uh, message database interaction error probably should be a little more verbose than that, but for the sake of my slide here, I just put that in. Type A, end if, and at this point, the program will exit after triggering the message, and rollback will automatically be performed on whatever that open SQL statement was, if it was something like an insert, update, or whatever have you, if it needed to be rolled back. Okay. If it wasn't successful, then rollback um, would not be relevant for the last statement. But really, that should say open SQL sequence of statements is the idea there. Those would be rolled back. Here's the other alternative. I could do this. If sy-subrc is not equal to zero, rollback work. And now at this point, my program is not going to exit. So I am responsible for figuring out what should happen here. And maybe at this point, I have uh, something more, you know, maybe the body of that if statement would be a whole set of statements there to try and do something in an alternate fashion. But as soon as we see rollback work, the system is, is going to perform that. Okay, questions about that? All right, let me, um, let's work through an example together. And to work through the example together, um, we're going to, uh, for the first time, at least live together in class, and I realize you're doing this for your homework uh, now, uh, work with the database table. But I never like to see us cut into a real system database table, and so we're going to talk about how to copy a database table to our own version of that database table for the sake of working with that. So how do we do that? Well, let me walk you through the process of copying a database table. Um, I can use SE11 to copy the database table structure to a, a new table. And what I do here is I specify the source database table. I select dictionary object copy from the menu and then I put in my, my new database table, okay? So let me show you what I'm talking about here. If I go to SE11, and let's say I want to copy um, the structure of SCAR, okay? I type SCAR in here, okay? And then what I do is I come up here to the menu and I do dictionary object copy. And that says, okay, you want to copy S car into what? And remember, we always start with our username. So I'm just going to create a table here called ZE02S car. And I will check that off. And I have to assign a package. And there we go. And table was copied from S car to ZE02S car. Okay, so that's how you copy a table. You just go into the dictionary. The key thing where you get stuck is you get to the source screen and you're like, okay, where's the button for that? And there is no button for copy. It's, it's here. And as a point of fact, 
we could use the same technique to copy any uh, dictionary object. And a lot of times you might do that as if there's a dictionary object out there that you like, but it's not totally what you would like. You could copy it, and then you could come into change and delete parts of it you don't like or add new things to it. But in this case, we start off with a, a perfect copy. So let's look at this now. Display, original language German, display in English. So the original table was created by someone who was logged in using German as their language, but I'm not. And so this is just information here. All the stuff before that used to show up at the bottom of the screen, now I'm going to get these dialog boxes from based on what we just did. So, so here's my table. Okay. Now, click this button right here. Um, ah, I have to activate my table. And notice right here, it says transparent table, and then it has new next to it. Okay, so I do have to activate this guy. No syntax errors were found. Don't care about warnings. Object activated. And so now I have active here. All right, now what's going to happen when I click on this to show the contents? I have a table. It has, I don't really, that's just an informational message here. Here we can see this for sure. I have an empty table. So when you copy a database table, you are copying the structure of the table, but not the data in the table. So how do we solve that? Write an ABOP program to populate my table with the data that's in the other table. So that will now be our next task before us. And I'm meant to hit this button. All right, so we have a database table called SCAR, and we have my new table that I created, ZE02SCAR. And I, I want to copy this. How do I do this? I am going to need a select statement, uh, but what else am I going to need before I start doing the select statement? I am going to need an internal table. Absolutely. So, data, I table, type standard table of, and I have a choice here. I could do either SCAR or ZE02SCAR because they're exactly the same but I'll stick with SCAR. So I now have an internal table that matches the structure of SCAR. Now what do I need to do? I could, uh, we'll probably find that we actually don't need a work area. Now I do my select. Select star from SCAR into table, high table. So now I have moved everything out of SCAR, copying it to my internal table. Now what do I do? What's that? I'm not going to write something to the screen. I really don't need to do that here. I do need to do the insert. And I think I had two people talking once, but I think you had the right idea. I can do an insert in one step from an internal table. Um, insert 
um, actually insert ZE zero oh it's right there insert ZE zero two S car from table I table Now what should I do right now? I, I probably should have some kind of write statement here. Write um, uh, sy-db count rows inserted I really should have some have some logic here you know first of all I, you know this right here in a way is is diagnostic because it's going to say zero rows inserted uh, if this program were doing something much more than this then at this point um, then at this point I would want to have additional logic here okay so save execute 18 rows inserted and now if I come back here there is my table alright I'm going to ask you a very very tricky question probably should have asked you without saying that first to see if anybody got this right true or false ZE02 SCAR and SCAR are now identical Okay, you probably gathered that the answer was false from the way I set that up. Why? Somebody explain why. It only has client 405 in it. Because I filled it using the select statement we saw a moment ago, which did not in any way say client specified. So all I pulled out of S car was the things from this client, and therefore that's what's put in. So those tables, technically speaking, at this point are not identical. But for the sake of me writing my programs in this client, it's perfectly fine. And what I'm going to suggest to you is this is a really good way to proceed when you're writing the logic of a program and you don't want to cut into a system level table for fear of messing it up. You copy it over, you run your program, you debug your program on your copies of the table, and then once you're sure you have it, then you change it to actually reference the system table. Okay? Questions about this? Yes, sir. You would have to, notice my insertion is based on it coming into an internal table. So I don't think there's any shorter way to do this. There's no way to go from database table to database table directly. We have to go by way of an intermediate, intermediate data object. Okay? Questions? Now remember last time uh, we talked about this, how would I suppose I, I somehow mess this up? How could I delete all the stuff that's in ZE02SCAR? What's the syntax for that? What? It uses the word delete. Here, let's make another program here. 
So I want to get rid of everything. What's my syntax? Anybody remember? Delete. I'm pretty sure it's from, let's just, here, let's do this. Delete. Delete from target where, okay, so I could just do delete from, and you please be careful with this, from ZE02SCAR. All right, so I run this guy. No output notice, I didn't have a write statement, but now I'll go back here to my table browser. My table is now empty. You can delete an SAP table. Absolutely, you have you have privilege to do that. Please do not do that. And and by the way, and and by the way, this is a really good. Uh, and I just filled my table back up. One of the things that we don't have the ability to talk about this semester due to time is a very important concept, actually. But there's, we don't have the, the, the way to do this. Um, there is something called an authentication object. Every user has an authentication object. And it's really kind of interesting the way SAP has done this. There are all kinds of different permissions in the system. And so, for example, you could give the user uh, an authentication object called developer, and that carries with it just a whole bunch of permissions. But there are actually permissions based on individual transactions, based on individual tables, and all of those have a particular code associated with them. And so whenever like a user gets blocked in the system and says, I need to do something, oftentimes we'll have to contact a system administrator. The system administrator can run a trace and say, oh, you were blocked because you don't have this authentication in your authentication object. And it gets added. And then this gets activated. And the user has permissions. So this is actually a really, really, really complex um, data element in the system. I just said that you as a developer have basically wide open access. And that's because we're running in this academic open environment here. But in addition to that, you may write a program that gets run by a user that has different levels of permission. So what will actually happen behind the scenes is when particular things get run, the users authentication object will, will, get, will get checked. And if they don't have the right permissions, they get very, very unhelpful error messages. So one of the things that you'll often do in ABOP development is you'll write code to check the user's authentication object, to give them more helpful uh, error messages and things of that sort related to it. There's no way for us to practice with that in our system. And I'm not even sure, has your textbook yet made any reference at all to authentication objects? 
Yeah, and I don't think it ever will because it's kind of a, a more more advanced feature here. Yes, sir. That's probably true. That's probably true. All right, we have a short amount of time here. We'll do more practicing with this next time. But I want to let's let's look at one thing here as an example. All right, right now my database table is full. Okay, this is my copy. So I'm going to come back here to my program that empties this out. Let me see if I can find it here. I'll start closing up windows that I'm not actually using. Alright, so I guess it's this guy. This guy right here is going to wipe this out. Okay, so I just deleted everything. Uh, let's check to see that that's the case. This is empty. Okay, so now what happens if I come back to this program right here and I Okay, now this is not conditional. Okay, we're just seeing what would happen here. So I'm going to save this, and I'm going to run this. It says 18 rows inserted, uh, but let's in fact check here. Nothing, okay? Because what I actually did is I did the insert, and then I said, oh, nope, pull that back. Okay. Normally you'd put that inside of conditional logic, but just to show you how rollback works here. Now you might say, well, hold on a second, it said 18 rows were inserted. Well, what it's really saying is when I rolled it back, remember, this technically is just how many rows were affected. So, you know, I could change this to uh, a given number of rows affected to make it more clear what's going on here. So I, as a developer, have the ability to roll back the work. But let's do one more thing here. Um, first of all, let me, let's see here. We, we already established that the table is empty, right? So what happens if I do this? All right. So now I'm going to save this, and I'm going to run it. It says 18 rows inserted. And in fact, no table entries were found. So I did it soon enough after the insert that even though something was written out to the screen, I still had time to I still had time to roll it back. Where this gets more challenging is, let's see if we did this do um, 100 times high and do. Okay. Now let's see. My table though has stuff in it right now. Does no, it doesn't. My table's still entry, still empty. So, or wait, yeah, I'm confused. Is my table empty or not? Okay, so let's see what happens now. Uh, statement, oh, I forgot the right. Okay, so I got a whole bunch of highs that I wrote to the screen, and then I tried to do the rollback. So now the question is, did I, did I really roll it back or not? And the answer is, yeah, I, w I still caught it soon enough for it to be rolled back. Um, but there are some, you know, if we had more advanced logic there, um, 
we would we would have been too late to roll it back. So you have kind of a window of opportunity there uh, with our rollbacks. I, I could. I mean, typically you would have the rollback contained inside of some kind of if statement. So yeah, you could, every time you do a database step, you could do an if, check, roll it back if you need to. But otherwise, you just keep going. Yes, sir? Is the rollback based on time, like when it automatically commits? I can explicitly commit, if I want to have logical unit of work committed, logical unit of work commit, logical unit of work commit, I could have a rollback associated with each of those. If I don't explicitly commit, I just need to be careful to realize that my rollback should be close to where the interaction was. If I put it 30 or 40 lines later, it may be too late to actually roll it back. I can't make any promises. So that's why that's why you always want to do it as soon as you can. That's kind of the rule of thumb here. All right, we are out of time for today.